We turn this morning to Romans 10 for our scripture reading. Romans chapter 10. We read this chapter along with our treatment of Lord's Day 25, which introduces the preaching and the sacraments as means of grace. We hear the inspired word of God. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart, Who shall ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth. And in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, haven't they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel, he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated, we read this in connection with Lord's Day 25, found in the back of our Psalters on page 14. Question and answer 65 through 68. Question. 
Question 65. Since then we are made partakers of Christ and all his benefits by faith only. Whence doth this faith proceed? From the Holy Ghost, who works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel and confirms it by the use of the sacraments. What are sacraments? The sacraments are holy, visible signs and seals appointed of God for this end, that by the use thereof he may the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel, namely, that he grants us freely the remission of sin and life eternal for the sake of that one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. Are both word and sacraments then ordained and appointed for this end, that they may direct our faith to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? Yes, indeed. For the Holy Ghost teaches us in the gospel and assures us by the sacraments that the whole of our salvation depends upon that one sacrifice of Christ which he offered for us on the cross. How many sacraments has Christ instituted in the New Covenant or Testament? Two, namely Holy Baptism and the Holy Supper. Beloved our Lord Jesus Christ, the preaching is one main element that distinguishes Protestant churches, especially from those of the Roman Catholic persuasion. The Reformers restored the preaching of the gospel as the chief element of worship to the church. How the Reformers loved to preach, and that's evident from all of their writings and from all the sermons that they produced. Martin Luther loved to to expound the scriptures. He stated it must be a grievous sin not to listen to the gospel and to despise such a treasure and so rich a feast to which we are bidden. But it is a much greater sin not to preach the gospel. Early in ministry, someone gave me a note card from Martin Luther with a quote. I preach as though Christ was crucified yesterday, rose from the dead today, and will return tomorrow emphasizing the urgency with which we go to the pulpit. We preach Christ, and we preach Christ who was crucified, who rose again, who's coming back again. John Calvin preached every single day. He did so in the morning between 5 and 6 a.m. so that the men could come, and then from there they could get to work on time. Many in our day would insist that that emphasis on the preaching is unnecessary. And that it was mistaken and that we don't need to emphasize that any longer today. Times have changed, they argue. And churches increasingly have more on their roles than actually attend. And then they start asking questions. How is it that we can attract more crowds? And the desire then is for something more entertaining. Something that would be more interactive. Because the preaching, that's old-fashioned. That's past. Ought we emphasize that Reformed preaching? And beloved, we confess that emphasis on preaching is biblical. Martin Luther and John Calvin were not mistaken. The other Reformers who restored the church again to the lively preaching of the gospel were faithful to the word of God. And one of the greatest blessings of the Reformation was precisely that, the exposition of Scripture in order that God's people might be strengthened in their faith and might be encouraged in their walk with him. Christ is present in the church through the preaching of the word and by the presence of his spirit. And Romans 10 identifies that importance here. 
as it emphasizes, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Verse 17. The sacraments added to that, we know, are necessary to confirm that faith that God works through the preaching. And so we look at God working faith, and we know the meaning and the manner. Faith is a gift from God. You recall back in Lord's Day 7, we addressed the significance of faith. Now, one of the most important questions that we face is, how do people get faith? And that's a question that we need to answer. And that's what this Lord's Day now seeks to answer. Faith is a gift from God. How is it then that we get it? Faith and repentance originate and proceed from God alone. Faith and repentance are not man's works. They are God's works. And they're completely finished and perfected by Jehovah God. No other author is to be acknowledged in regard to faith or repentance than Jehovah God by the work of the Holy Spirit. The authors of the Catechism deemed this subject of faith and the way we get faith so important that another Lord's Day addresses that matter. Now we've seen, as I noted, in the preceding Lord's Days that we're delivered from the bondage of sin by Jesus Christ alone. And that Christ gives us faith by which we lay hold upon the victory that is ours in him. How that righteousness of Christ is credited to our account is by faith. And that faith is not our work. That faith is not something we can accomplish. It's nothing that we can take credit for. It's a gift of God. How do we get it? How do we receive it? The nature of that saving faith back in Lord's Day 7 was set forth as the means by which we're engrafted to Christ and receive then all his benefits by a true faith. Faith being the graft. And as soon as that analogy is made use of, we understand how passive we are. We have nothing to do with that grafting. We're the dead stick that now is taken and grafted into Christ who is the living tree. And out of Christ now that life flows to that which was dead. So that that which was dead is made alive. Jehovah God marvelously taking we who were dead in trespasses and sins and uniting us to Christ by that true and living faith. Faith then is the bond by which we're united to Christ. And all the elect enjoy that bond by virtue of the wonder of God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. God takes us who are dead. He regenerates us, gives us life, and then he implants us into Christ. Now the fruit of that faith, the fruit of that bond, as Lord's Day 7 pointed out, is knowledge and confidence. We grow in our knowledge of that God and of Jesus Christ. We grow in our confidence and our trust in him. That fruit involves us in activity. But even then, that fruit is precisely that. It's the fruit of that bond, and it's God working in us now in order that we embrace Christ, and we lay hold on him, and we trust in him, and we grow then in our knowledge and appreciation of the wonder of his work. Faith comes from the Holy Ghost. Question answer 65, make that emphatic now. Since then, We are made partakers of Christ and all his benefits by faith only. Whence doth this faith proceed from the Holy Ghost who works faith in our hearts? This is God's 
work. And this is one of the main works of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit we know moves whither it will. It's like the wind. We can't stop the wind. We can't see the wind. We can't in any way control the wind. The wind will go wherever it desires. And so is the work of the Holy Spirit. God sending that Spirit into the hearts of His children in order to join them to Himself and to give them to know that living faith. Now that Spirit convicts men and women. It causes them to see their sin. It works in them that belief. It enables them to know the joy and the wonder of Christ's perfect work and God's grace and God's mercy in Christ. How precious, how encouraging are the words of Scripture, especially the words of the Apostle in Philippians, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1 verse 6. God, by the Holy Spirit, implants that faith. He joins us to Christ. And he will bring it to its conclusion. He will continue that wonder and he will finish what he has begun. That's the wonder of God's goodness and God's mercy toward us. We are weak. We are sinful. We don't appreciate that union to Christ like we ought. We deny Christ as did Peter of old. And yet God will never forsake the work of his hands. God is faithful. Now what is the goal of God in taking us and uniting us to Christ and giving unto us that living faith? It's to make us beautiful. It's to make us attractive so that spiritually we look like him. And that's the meaning of grace. Grace is pleasantness. It's beauty. It's attractiveness. Jehovah God is infinite in his beauty and his attractiveness. And God is the fullness of his perfections. And Jehovah God now takes us and he brings us into that beauty. He makes us attractive as he is. He makes us pleasant. And that's the wonder of grace. Grace is to favor. It's to be pleasant toward another. It's the attitude of the heart. It's that inclination by which God takes us who are dirty, who are filthy, who are unattractive, and now makes us those who are precious in his sight. Now God uses elements from this world in order to accomplish that transformation. We know that he regenerates us, he gives us life, he unites us to Christ. But now as we're in the midst of this life, yet retaining that sinful nature, God goes to work on us. And there are numerous names that the Bible gives to this process. God is sanctifying us. God is causing us to grow spiritually. But in all of it, God is making use of every experience in your and my life in order to beautify us, in order to make us more pleasant, in order to make us more attractive, that we increasingly reflect the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God is gracing us through all the experiences of life. And so in the broadest sense, we would say God uses every single experience and all the elements of this life as means to make us more pleasant and more beautiful in his eyes. Even if we would get into an automobile crash and we would have to have all kinds of surgery on our face and our face would require all kinds of stitching, We would be more beautiful. Now, maybe not physically. We might have a face full of scars. But God used that event to cause us to become 
more attractive in his eyes. He drew us to himself through it. And he makes it so that his spiritual traits, the works of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, will more prominently be evident in our lives through that experience. And we believe this is God's work in every aspect of life. Romans 8 verse 28, that all things work together for good. And that God is using every single thing in your and my life to draw us to himself and to make us spiritually graced, attractive, conformed to his image. Now that beauty and that work of God, while we can understand it in such a general sense, is being performed in a more narrow sense. And that's what we're getting at here in this Lord's Day. What are the means of grace? Now we're talking about specifically, what are the means, the chief means now that God uses in our lives to draw us closer to him and to grace us with spiritual beauty? And the Catechism says, quoting Scripture, that it's the preaching and the sacraments. Those are the chief means that God makes use of. In the narrowest sense, those are the two. God uses the preaching and he uses the sacraments to make believers more and more spiritual and more like him. The preaching of the word is the chief means of grace. Now that preaching has to be the preaching of Christ. The wonder of Christ crucified, risen again, and exalted at God's right hand. And as God's word is exposited, and as God's word is preached in all of its beauty and fullness, that's the means by which God is beautifying us, by which he's making us more attractive spiritually, by which he's sanctifying us so that there's personal growth there. And flowing out of that preaching is going to be abundant fruit. There's going to be a desire to be in the Word, to have personal devotions. There's going to be a desire to have Bible study and to attend Bible study with fellow saints. There's going to be a desire to pray. So that flowing out of that wonder work of God through the preaching, there's going to be fruit that encompasses the whole of our lives. But this is the chief means that God makes use of. The sacraments, secondary. The sacraments are means by which he strengthens that faith. The preaching, the power by which he's working it. Now we confess that true beauty only comes from one source. And that's Jesus Christ and the wonder of his sacrifice. There's nothing else in which we can find comfort or hope. And there's nothing else that gives us beauty or that causes us to be pleasant before the face of God. It's Jesus Christ and his righteousness That causes God to look upon us now and see us as those who are beautiful and those who are attractive, those whose sins are forgiven, whose iniquities are covered, and those who are washed through his perfect atoning work. The whole of our salvation depends on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he offered for us on the cross. And that's again where this Lord's Day directs us. If we're to grow in grace and to grow in faith, we need Christ. We need Christ more than anything. And Christ is the one with whom we identify. He's the one to whom we belong. Now, men and women today rely on themselves too much. And we know how much we rely on ourselves, how inclined we are to depend and to trust in ourselves. What we've done, what we can do to make ourselves 
attractive before God and to make ourselves worthy of God's goodness and God's mercy. That sentiment is here completely set aside. There is nothing you can do to make yourself more beautiful of yourself. You are dependent upon God, and you're dependent upon the means that God has ordained, and most importantly, Christ, by His Word and Spirit. You need Christ more than anything. And beloved, that's our confession. We need Christ. Where are we going to find Christ in this day? We find Christ in worship. We find Him in His church. We find Him through the preaching of the gospel and through the sacraments. That's where Christ is present. Now we sometimes ask, how is Christ present? And there's a mystery there that we're going to delve into in the coming Lord's days. How is it that Christ is present in the preaching? How is it that Christ is present through baptism and through the Lord's Supper? There's a marvelous wonder. Spiritually, Christ is present there. And Christ now feeds us and he nourishes us with that which is our greatest need. The knowledge of his word, his sacrament, his sacrifice, and his work. And so Christ is at work, and Christ is at work in your life and in my life. And Christ takes hold of us, and he joins us to himself by that true faith, and now he works in us the activity and the confidence of it. And God ordains means toward that end. We need means. And that's what the canons of, the canons of Dort, the other confessions emphasize that wonder. And they make the connection between our physical life and our spiritual life. God takes care of us physically. He provides what we need physically. He also provides spiritually what we stand in need of. And note in the third and fourth head there, Article 17. As the almighty operation of God, whereby he prolongs and supports this, our natural life does not exclude but requires the use of means by which God of his infinite mercy and goodness had chosen to exert his influence, so also the before-mentioned supernatural operation of God by which we're regenerated in no wise excludes or subverts the use of the gospel, which the most wise God has ordained to be the seed of regeneration and food of the soul. Just as God ordains that in order for our physical life to be maintained, we need to eat. And if you quit eating, you'll die. So spiritually, God ordains means by which he feeds us with that spiritual food, grace. And if we cut ourselves off from that, we too spiritually then will suffer and we will die. This is God's work and the means that God has ordained. Faith needs to be worked by God and by his spirit. And this is what we pray for for our children We realize this as parents. I can't work faith in the hearts of my children. God alone is able to do it. And this is why then we bring our little ones to church. This is why we teach our little ones the importance of worship not only, but the preaching of the gospel as the power of God unto salvation. And we pray that Jehovah God will work that faith in the hearts of our children, our young people, in order that they might know him and know the love with which he has loved them. And live out of the joy and the wonder of his perfect sacrifice. Now how does God work this? The manner is set forth by the preaching and by sacraments. The preaching is the authoritative proclamation of God's word by the church in the service of God through Jesus Christ by his spirit. So the preaching now is the authoritative proclamation of God's word 
that the church takes up. And the church does it in the service of God by His Spirit through her ordained ministry. So that preaching then, first of all, must be the speech of God through Jesus Christ. The preaching is not the opinion of men. If a man gets in the pulpit and sets forth his own opinion, sets forth political concerns, that's not preaching. Preaching is taking God's Word and now expositing it, laying it out, explaining it in order that God's people can understand and know what it is that God sets forth in that word. And so Christ is the one who's pleased to speak to his people through that preaching. We gather in worship to hear what Christ would have to say to us. We're not interested in the opinion of a man. We're not interested in what a preacher merely thinks. We want to know what God has to say to us. And we want to know what Christ has to say. And so Christ has a word for us. And what is the word of Christ? As our beloved bridegroom, the burden of Christ is to impress upon us his bride. You are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. I've accomplished the whole of salvation on your behalf. Christ will not allow us to have any occasion to doubt his love for us and the wonder of his perfect work on our behalf. And so Christ comes to us with the word of the gospel. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. John 5, verse 24. That's the message of Christ to you and to me. I've delivered you. There is therefore now no condemnation for you. Your sins are forgiven. And now I'm preserving and keeping you in order to bring you into the everlasting bliss of the joy of heavenly life in the new Jerusalem. Now the word of man can't give that kind of hope. The word of man can't give the assurance of forgiveness. What is our need? We need to know that we are forgiven. And we need to know the wonder of God's grace in preserving and keeping us and bringing us into the joy of salvation. We know our own unworthiness. We know how sinful we are. The devil is constantly tempting us, plaguing us with guilt and shame. We need to know Christ and his work on our behalf. And so that's the wonder. No man is able to assure someone, you're forgiven. And don't worry, you're going to go to heaven. A mere man can't do that. And the words of a man are going to ring hollow. I'm not going to be able to go forward in my life with any kind of peace or joy. Nothing that a man can do can forgive my sins. What authority does a man have to say, you have peace? No man can give me peace. A man cannot give me the foundation of perfect confidence in the life and death of my Savior Jesus Christ. I need to hear it from Christ. And Christ himself has to come to me. And that's what Romans 10 emphasizes here. How shall they believe him whom they've not heard? Verse 14. Christ now comes to his children. And Christ now speaks to them. He speaks to our hearts. He speaks to our concerns. He speaks to our consciences. And he gives us to know, you are mine. I have set my love upon you. And nothing, nothing can separate you from the wonder of that love. Preaching, then, is not merely the work of a man. This is Christ 
and the word of Christ coming to us in order to give us what we need in order to be made beautiful in his sight. And the apostle speaks of this in verses 15 and following. How shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of salvation. That gospel of peace is the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. It's not a gospel that sets forth man. It's not a gospel that sets forth the glory of man, salvation by man, salvation by man's work. This is a gospel that sets forth salvation through the work of Jesus Christ alone and by faith alone. I need to hear Christ. And the gospel of peace, the glad tidings must be brought through the preaching. So that the preaching of the gospel is a preaching concerning God and his glory as the God who has sovereignly ordained all things and the God who has from eternity elected to himself a people. A God who has sent his own son in order to accomplish the wonder of that salvation by his perfect sacrifice. And a God who by his spirit is at work in our hearts and in our lives convicting us and giving us to know the wonder of that love and that faithfulness. That word reconciles us. That word justifies us. That word gives us to know the glad tidings of forgiveness, adoption unto children, deliverance from the bondage of sin and death, and the hope, the glorious hope of life everlasting. Now God declares through the preaching then that he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 33 verse 11. But he commands all men everywhere to repent and to believe. Acts 17 verse 30. And he works by his spirit in the hearts of his own that faith and that trust and that belief. This is the word of God that must be brought through the preaching. It must be proclaimed on the basis of individual texts. So it's going to come from different angles. It's going to come from different ways. But as it comes on the basis of individual passages, every passage is going to bring out Christ and the wonder of Christ's perfect work on our behalf. Because Christ is the theme that runs through the whole of the Scripture and the wonder of his perfect work. And so that preached, that message is preached from different perspectives, It's preached to whoever God in his good pleasure sends it. The application is made to all different aspects of our lives, to different phases of our lives, different struggles, different circumstances in which we find ourselves. The light of that gospel shines over against war as well as peace. It shines over against prosperity as well as adversity, sickness and health, death and life barren and fruitful years, the home, the school, the state, in every aspect of our lives. This word has application, and it stirs us up unto gratitude and thankfulness to this God who has given us a Savior in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The whole counsel of God must be proclaimed, and that requires careful distinctions, precise theological terminology and definitions in order that God be exalted and his name be glorified. Always this preaching of the word of God has Christ as its theme and center. In seminary when we were taught exegesis, that is taking a text now and breaking apart that text using the original languages and then 
the concepts that are found therein, we were taught, put a cross on the top of your paper so that always you're reminding yourself, Christ, where is Christ? Where is Christ in the text? What is the emphasis here that has to be taught concerning Christ? What is the application here that Christ desires be made? So that every sermon has to be Christ-centered. Now that implies that the preaching then is going to be authoritative. Mere words of a man aren't authoritative, but Christ and his word bears authority. And that's the New Testament word for preach. It's herald. The preacher delivers a message as the herald of God. He's the one who comes now sent and commissioned by God to proclaim now the message of Jehovah with authority. And so he must clearly demonstrate that what he's speaking is not merely his own words. The congregation isn't left to think that, well, if we listen, it's all right. If we don't listen, it's okay. It's not a matter of sharing some thoughts, sharing some experiences. The preaching is, thus saith Jehovah. This is the word of God. Man's word has no power. Man's word has no authority. The way in which God brings it through men whom he inspired and through men now who proclaim it still doesn't give it authority. It's God that gives it authority. And the fruit of that preaching rests on Christ. A man can't accomplish fruit in the hearts of individuals, but Christ, by his spirit, works in the hearts of his elect in order to bring fruit to that preaching. Jesus, then, is set forth not as an item that is to be sold, not an item that you have to convince people to embrace. He's the power, the almighty power by which men and women are drawn out of shame and guilt and given to know peace, given to know joy, and given to know fellowship with the living God. Now, that preacher must be sent by the church because the preaching belongs to the church. It's the authoritative proclamation of the gospel by the church. The church is authorized by God to proclaim the word. And so ministers need to be authorized and sent by the church. A man may be able to say many good things, but there's a difference between the word of one and the word of the other. And so far as its power and authority and significance are concerned. And while men are gifted with the ability to expound Scripture and to set forth the Word of God, yet God says it's the official proclamation that is the means of grace. And we understand that a bit. President Biden, for instance, has a spokesperson that is the one to whom the reporters go in order to hear his official response to different questions. Now, another aide might know as much or more than that spokesperson, but if that aide runs off and starts telling everybody about different things and certain information, that aide is not to be altogether trusted because he lacks the power, he lacks the authority of the spokesperson whom the president has appointed. In our churches, we make a distinction between one who's officially called to preach and one who's speaking a word of edification. The message is edifying. The message is building up God's church and God's people. Seminarians, candidates for the ministry speak a word of edification, but it's the preacher alone who has the official commission from Christ to speak. And Christ will see to it that that word goes to whomever it pleases him 
to send it. How is the preacher sent? The preacher is sent, first of all, by an inner conviction of heart. A young man feels in his heart and believes that God is calling him to the ministry. And so he pursues God's will. He goes to seminary. He takes the courses that are necessary. He engages himself in the practice preaching and all of the other labors. He finally is licensed to be able to speak that word of edification. He does so. And then he submits to the examinations that take place at synod and at classes. But it's not enough for that man merely to think or to feel in his heart, I think that God wants me to be a minister. More is required. That man must receive an objective call from a church to come over and help. And that's the confirmation of that inner call. And that's the means that God uses in order now to send that man officially by that congregation. Now the preaching is identified as the primary means of grace. The Spirit could work faith in any other way, just as God could make it so that we don't have to eat and drink. We realize when we get to heaven, that's going to be the way in which we're going to be able to live. We'll have spiritual bodies, not physical, and we won't have to eat or drink anymore in order for us to be physically maintained. God could have done that already now. He didn't. God ordained that means would be necessary for our physical life. And so God ordained means necessary for our spiritual life. And so God works then by the preaching of the gospel. Now we recognize, of course, there's benefit, and we encourage, read the Bible. Study the Bible on your own. Spend time in prayer. Gather together with fellow saints to encourage one another. There's benefits in all of these things. And none of them can be separated from the preaching. It's the proclamation of God's word that's most crucial. And these others flow out of that which God has ordained. So just as it was true for the apostles and for the reformers to promote the faithful, preaching of the pure gospel of salvation so it is for us now we realize that that preaching is not necessary for conversion it's not necessary for the first work of god's grace in the heart of the believer that initial work of the implanting of the seed of regeneration we believe that regeneration is immediate as pertains that initial work god alone is able to work that wonder And he doesn't need any means. He's able to perform it marvelously and according to his sovereign good pleasure alone. The Holy Spirit's not bound to means but works in all powerful ways. For instance, the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, God gave him new life, regenerated him, and then Christ spoke to him and caused that new life that he had experienced now to come alive and to be evident within him. So also God works the gift of regeneration apart from our consciousness by a wonder of his grace, often in infancy, even in the womb. And then God causes that to come alive through the preaching of the gospel as the preaching now comes and as the individual now grows and matures under that preaching. So a farmer plants a seed in the soil and that seed lays seemingly dormant and dead, but then God sends the sunshine, the rain, the warmth, And God causes growth, life. So it is with regeneration in the narrower and the broader sense. In the narrowest sense, he implants that seed, apart from the consciousness of God's children at all. And then in time, through the preaching of the gospel, 
And through other means now, he causes growth. He causes it to develop. And he gives us then that understanding and awareness of what he's done in our lives. So that children from early, early on are included in the covenant and in the kingdom of Christ. And God is pleased to work regeneration and to give them the gift of faith from early on so that they understand and know their union with Christ. It's a childlike faith, as the Bible talks about, but nevertheless, God then causes that faith now to grow in its activity, its knowledge, and its confidence throughout the course of our lives. Faith is worked by the preaching in the sense that it's the preaching that causes now an individual to know and to be aware of that new life that God has worked within us. And the Spirit uses that preaching as a power then. It's not identical in all believers. We realize that. It's identical as to its essence. We're bound to Christ. But as to its activity, it's going to differ. God convicts one of his sin, of his misery, causes that one to know his unworthiness, draws that one to himself, brings that one to the point of holy despair so that he realizes that there's nothing I can do of myself. There's no comfort I can find of me. And he moves them to come to Christ. And he causes them to see in Christ everything that they need for forgiveness and for their salvation. This is God's work. And the manner and the circumstances are going to be very different very greatly from individual to individual. He works sooner in one than he does in another. He leads one in a more severe manner, we would say, through more struggles than he does another. He brings Christ into focus more quickly in one than he does in another. But in all things, God is the one working these wonders. And the development of that seed of regeneration now is dependent upon the means that God has ordained, the preaching as the chief means. That seed grows, and that seed now matures, and that seed produces the fruit of knowledge and confidence. The preaching, the power of God, that's working that fruit. The fruit of that preaching, more and more, I'm looking away from myself, and I'm looking to Christ and to his perfect sacrifice, once offered on my behalf. And in that way, my faith is strengthened. My faith is built up, and I'm drawn increasingly to see my union with Christ as my only comfort in life and in death. God then confirms that with the sacraments. And we have here just an introduction to the sacraments. The next Lord's Days, we're going to dig into more detail, into baptism and the Lord's Supper. But the sacraments presuppose that faith. Their purpose is to strengthen that faith. Where there's no faith, the sacraments are of no use. They're of no account. The sacraments merely increase the damnation of those who have no faith. Why then, we ask, is baptism administered to infants? Baptism is administered to the children of believers, children whose parents give evidence of that faith, which faith God is pleased now to work in the hearts of his children in the line of generations. Individuals whose parents are not believers are not to be baptized until they themselves give evidence of faith and they make confession of that faith within their own hearts. Individuals who do not give evidence of faith must be kept from the table. They may not be embraced and received to the table. Now what are the sacraments? The catechism says they're holy, visible, signs and seals appointed of God for this end 
that by the use thereof he may the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel. Signs are appointed by God as representing something so that they're visible representations of something that's invisible. The invisible truth here is the wonder of salvation in Jesus Christ and the wonder of the hope that is ours in him, the forgiveness of my sins and everlasting righteousness. God gives us visible signs as pictures of that wonder. We think in the Bible of the whole of the creation displaying such signs. And so that the Bible talks about the lamb, the thistle, mustard seed, the rose of Sharon, the dove, the mighty ocean, the snow, the wind. All of these have a place in representing something spiritual in our lives. There are other special signs that God ordained. Manna. God gave the rainbow. Signs that God himself distinctly created and set with specific application and specific messages to us. Now the sacraments are special in that they're signs instituted by God exclusively for use in the church. There's a visible element. The visible is the sign. And when we get to the Lord's Supper, we'll see there's a number of different aspects to that visible element. With baptism, similarly. But what is that to which they point? The blood of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins that is through him by faith alone. We don't pick the sacraments. God does. And God gives us clearly the fact that he's ordained two. Question 68 points that out. And notice the scriptural basis of that question and answer. Matthew 28, verse 19, where Jesus commissions the church to baptize. And 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 25, where God sets forth the importance of the Lord's Supper. And Jesus himself commanding us to remember it until he comes back again. The sacraments are more than signs in that they're seals. Now, a seal is a pledge from God that he will fulfill it. It's something that can't be broken. And so the question right away is asked, and we'll look again in more detail, of what are the sacraments a seal, and what do they seal? Is it the fact that the sacrament seals the individual? That would be impossible. Because sacraments do not seal the person, nor do they seal salvation to that person. There's nothing automatic that takes place when someone is baptized or someone receives the Lord's Supper. The sacraments are not automatic in that they somehow perform some wonder despite the individual's faith. And so it's impossible then that they seal the individual. Sacraments seal rather the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is by faith. Faith is emphasized in all the references of the Bible to the sacraments. Always it has to do with faith. And so God is sealing, he's assuring with an oath that he will save everyone who believes in Jesus Christ and that he will give them the fullness of their salvation so that the sacraments are for believers and that which is sealed is the righteousness that is by faith. And so the promises then and the sealing is particular. It's to God's children. It's to the elect in whom God is working that faith. And the promise is to the elect, the one who's given faith. So the promise is to those who have faith. And this is the promise that God will not 
forsake you. God will preserve you. And God will keep you. And God has given you that gift of faith. And you believe on Jesus Christ. And God seals now his promise with regard to that faith. That those who believe will not be cast off. But every last of them will be given to know the joy and wonder of life everlasting. And so the sacraments direct then the faith of the believer to Christ and to the wonder of that perfect sacrifice once offered on Calvary. The unbeliever receives nothing from the sacrament. The sacrament does not lie. The sacrament is a seal of the righteousness that is by faith alone. The believer does not need that sacrament to be saved. The believer desires the sacrament. God uses it as a means by which his faith is strengthened in that one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so the sacraments are directing our attention to Christ. The sacraments are setting forth the wonder and the glory of what Christ has done. And that faith that God works in us lays hold on Christ, embraces Christ as our salvation. The believer then receives a repeated sign and seal of his salvation. And he's assured that his righteousness is on the base of Christ alone. The Holy Spirit working the assurance and God pledging it by his own name. We're shaken with doubts and fears sometimes. The devil works on us and makes us feel the guilt and the shame of our sin and we come into his sanctuary and we're not certain as to where we stand with God and whether we can even be recipients of the wonder of salvation. And God gives us then a pledge that the devil can never take from us. He promises salvation through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he pledges that he will take us and he will bring us into the glory that awaits. And he works in us the faith by which we lay hold on Christ as our righteousness. And we embrace him and we believe that sign not only, but the seal which is grounded on Jehovah God and his faithfulness, his oath by which he's sworn by himself that he will bring it to pass. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for the wonder of thy grace in our hearts. We thank thee for the marvelous work of thy spirit, giving us to know faith and giving us to know Christ and his sacrifice and giving us to know not only the knowledge concerning it, but the blessed confidence and assurance. It's mine. He laid his life down for me. His righteousness is my righteousness. And the ability then to go forward as those who confess the wonder and the joy of that salvation and that glorious hope and that we might know and believe and not be ashamed. Amen.